episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Um, do, you, do you always smile when you say that because you're just happy to say it or you know it sounds happier if you're smiling because you always have the biggest grin on your face? No, I just love saying it. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> every kid wants to be a pirate, I think. And uh, <laughs> no, I, I thought you were going to say every kid wants to be a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have such a good a, a good time doing this podcast. I I really do. And it's good to see you. It's good to see your smiling face again, Aaron. Yeah, well, I am glad that your uh, lawn people have stopped. Listeners, I have to tell you, I've rarely seen Nate really upset about anything, just a handful of times. But man, when those lawn people come, it is a genuine anger, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could become a sniper, I think. Uh, (laughs) You really get unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm trying to record something here. Yeah, but think about all the stuff we leave in. Like, perfectionism is not a part of this show. That's true. And yet, those weed whackers, man, (laughs) they're wrecking everything. It's okay. You don't have to do anything about it. I was mostly talking to the listeners because they they don't get to be amused by it. (laughs) So, so, uh, how's life out there on the left coast? Good. I don't remember the last time we talked uh, about life because everything's so out of order. But yeah, it's a super busy season, but I get to go to Yosemite again this weekend and do that musical thing like I did a couple times last year. Fantastic. So that has got to be the best job in the world. And nope. their, their chef quit and they knew I liked to cook. So I think I now have an added job. Oh, wow. I get to do some some cooking out there, which is awesome. That'll be great. I have been the beneficiary of your culinary skills, buddy. You are gifted in the kitchen. But yeah, but out where there's no kitchen, electricity, or running water, that makes it super exciting. Okay. Like 45 people. It's going to be amazing. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm super excited. And I hope. <laughs> He had one other option for a chef coming in, which this has been kind of billed. I mean, last year he had a gourmet chef person out there giving like wow. amazing food. So I I really hope his replacement chef can't do it because that'll just be just crazy. Okay. <laughs> you, you, well, well, this uh, this opens up new possibilities, I think, for Samson retreats and get-togethers. Oh heck yeah! All you have to do is invite Aaron, and he'll he'll handle the food. Oh man, yes, and, please. And we could just meet together anywhere. By the way, uh, had a planning meeting uh, with the planning team for the upcoming another forty-eight hours Samson retreat comes up first weekend in November. Uh, boy, what a terrific weekend that's going to be! Uh, uh, the the program is just going to be so full and yet we're finding a way to make room for men to get some personal time. And then what's beautiful to me is how many guys are coming uh, to hug their Silas for the first time because they met their Silas in a virtual meeting. They've been connecting by phone and video. Uh, Now they're going to get a chance to really spend some time together. Don't you feel like this should should be like a dating game where they're both behind screens and everybody's (laughs) watching? He's like, bring them out one couple at a time and just enjoy it. Because I want to I see each of these meetings happen. 
<laughs> uh, no, somebody, uh, at the uh, board meeting last night for Samson House, somebody suggested that we should video those reunions. And then, but then I remember uh, uh, we have voted in the past not to video these experiences uh, for the sake of confidentiality. So I don't think we'll have a video camera there. Yeah, it's true. But yeah. I, I know from meeting my Silas for the first time after not even knowing yeah. what he looked like for over a year, that was an amazing thing when we were up in the, the, the mountain, the Smoky Mountains that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it is great. Hey, let me run something past you. Uh, I just mentioned that we had a board meeting for Samson House, uh, which is not the Samson Society. It's a separate nonprofit organization that is doing its best to support the growth of the society and has funded the new website, the virtual meetings and so on. So just a few really good guys. Uh, and one of them suggested, I think, in a moment of inspiration last night, kind of a new tagline for the society, one that's broad, uh, that uh, doesn't kind of have a sex addiction vibe. Uh, <laughs> Did we use, was there one that had a sex addiction? Vibe? No, 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 there oh, okay. isn't. However, <laughs> how, however, I do think that there is a general popular misconception that Samson Society is solely and exclusively for and about sex, sex addicts. Okay. Which can, you know, when we're so much more than that. How about this? Samson Society. Who are you walking with? Oh. Do you like that? That's right up there with Got Milk. Yes! Uh, I I'm, think so. Because really, that's what this is all about. It's just getting out of isolation and walking with each other transparently, honestly, vulnerably. I, yeah. I think that is a good tagline. I was worried that you were doing this, you know, while we were recording. Because I was fully anticipating not liking it, and I like it. <laughs> okay, good. It's got good. it's well, got my vote. Not that I have a vote, but yeah, I like yeah. it. We'll see where it goes. Well, we've got a great guest today, uh, and and a longish interview. So, mm-hmm. kind of think we should start moving towards that. Let's I'm do excited it. that really underneath everything that our guest is talking about is this idea of where is my identity? Mm-hmm. And I, we, we don't talk about it, but I think it's important for people that are, that are struggling with or coming out of uh, different bondage, addictions, sin, uh, that it can become a search for a new identity, but that identity can then be totally wrapped up in sobriety. Yeah, 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 yeah. And an identity wrapped up in sobriety is little better than an identity wrapped up in addiction. It'll, yeah. it'll feel good for a while, and then it'll take you straight into slavery. Boy, you have said it. There it is. That is a foundation built on sand. Yeah. So let's let's do this. Sobriety is a wonderful thing, but it's not yeah. something to put your life on. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 to note, you'll have better consequences in your life with your sobriety than with your addiction. <laughs> but ultimately, as a person, uh, yeah. you're gonna you're gonna be missing out. So, should we take a quick break and come back with your old friend that I get to meet for the first time? Let's do it. All right, we'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. I thought 
My testimony was less than holy I thought that I was less blessed than my homie Just confessing only the big sins I thought that was a badge of honor I thought I had to have a story that was packed with drama But I ain't never been shot, no big crimes Never smoked weed, never drank, I never did time I grew up with both parents, both cheering me on Teaching me basic things like no swearing It's so apparent I came up in the church Socially that's where I gained my worth Learned to pray and to serve myself for God Displaying his worth by living without blame on the earth Just the average kid, you know the type that like to play in the dirt Came home with dirt stains on my shirt Reciting the same old verse at the table No pains, no hurts And I knew that I was called before the day of my birth And it's like that I ain't got no horror story God kept me in my youth, I give him all the glory Thought my story would the flow, but now I know The blood of the lamb has saved my soul That's my testimony and we are back in the Pirate Monk Podcast, and our guest this week is a fellow that I met, gosh, it's got to be pushing 17, 18, 19 years ago. I don't know. That's right. <laughs> Might have been introduced by David Mullen. Yeah. Uh, I certainly remember this young guy. I used to go to the, to the rec center every morning and shoot baskets. And uh, there was this good-looking guy on the court next to mine who was just over there draining threes all day. <laughs> I love the way you're remembering this. Yeah. It's not true at all, but I, just keep going. Keep going. I like it. I'm, I'm still stuck picturing you playing basketball. I didn't know you had ever oh, played basketball in your life. Oh, yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm a tremendous basketball player as long as there's nobody else on the court. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's incredible. And, and it's one of my favorite ways to, to get exercise. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so picking up the story, you were at yeah. a basketball court, you saw a stranger that was a yeah. handsome young man on another court. This, I don't know where the story's going from there. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable, but confessions, <laughs> go ahead. Keep going. Very friendly guy. He's got a ready smile. Uh, and, uh, so you pulled up your van with the soaped up windows uh, right. alongside the court. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we met in the shower. No, that's not what happened at wow. all. Curtis, you're out, right? You're just. I'm like, immediately regretting the decision <laughs> to join you for this podcast right now. What in the world is happening? No, so we find out. Uh, he tell, uh, find out his name is CZ. He goes by CZ. His name is Curtis Zachary. And at the time... Uh, you were a rap artist. Yeah, so I was doing hip-hop uh, and kind of production, songwriting, uh, programming for different artists. I was doing a lot of different things in the music arena. And yeah. Mostly just kind of uh, exploring and pursuing whatever it is that, that was stirring in my heart. I was just trying to figure it all out. Yeah. And that yeah. was part of the expression. Yeah. So you were a single guy in your early 20s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Back it up for us. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, family life growing up, where you were in the family and how you, you know, the, the long and winding road that brought you yeah. to Tennessee. Let me make that long and winding road as short as possible. Okay, do but, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my parents were never married. Uh, both my parents were alcoholics. Um, so those two contributing factors definitely shaped and affected a lot of who I was as a young man. Sure. Um, I'm a biracial individual, half black, half white. And so that was also a part of, 
the exploration of identity and trying to understand who I was. So there were a lot of moving pieces mm-hmm. to my childhood that contributed to, I think, who I began to be living out of those spaces. And um, growing up in New Jersey, uh, we didn't really have a lot. We were kind of in an under-resourced situation. And so that also affected the ways that I tried to project myself and, mm-hmm. and put forward myself to other people. Um, so there was just a lot of fluidity around my uh, established identity and understanding who I was. Uh, and that really did define a lot of my childhood. I was very repressed in my emotions. I didn't really share a lot. There was a lot of built up anger and resentment that I had experienced in my life just as a result of just kind of the life situation that I had kind of been born into. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that really did affect a lot of the ways that I primarily related with my parents. You know, I was a outgoing, likable person to most of the people that I was around. Uh, but that was really just a veneer. Uh, mm. I didn't really know a lot of people. Um, and then when it came to my parents, there was just a lot of pent up resentment, anger, frustration, and kept me from emotionally expressing who I was in any way. And so... Did you know uh, that you were angry and resentful towards, or was it just a general feeling? Yeah, I think what I now, and, and you know, retrospect, hindsight, you know, am able to say is I see that there was a clear and, and total um, resentment that was unwarranted and undeserved of my mom. <laughs> uh, because... When I was a kid, I was kind of made to choose where to live. I had to kind of pick um, which house I was going to live in when my parents kind of went their separate ways. And one, no kid should have to make that decision themselves, you know. But then two, uh, I remember making the decision to go live with my dad. And I think that there was a lot of stuff underneath that that came from fear. It came from uh, just what I believe to be the best recourse and preservation of uh, my mom and, and the peace, <laughs> the relative peace of the situation. And I mm-hmm. think I, uh, intuitively made that decision as a young child. And I think some of the resentment and anger that I had built up in me was one, partly just because of my life situation and the difficulty of some of the things we had to navigate. And two, uh, this unwarranted resentment that went toward my mom, because I felt like she let me go, you know, to, to live with my dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you kind of now as an adult look at that and you think, I'm sure she was weeping every day in her house because her son had chosen to live with <laughs> this estranged man, you know? So wow. what a, what a, is, what a uh, common feeling, though, when somebody lets us make a decision, but deep down we want them to fight for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's rejection. What's interesting with that, too, is, you know, even in that instance, you could see how, uh, everyone's kind of helpless, you know, in the, in the process. It's like, I, I'm kind of left to my, my own devices and resources. She's kind of helpless saying, you know, he, it's, it's kind of up to you in this situation because my dad is setting this table where, you know, this is the scenario, you know, that, that it's being played out in. And so, so here you are in New Jersey, a kid, are you being uh, raised around a lot of other white kids, black kids, or just a mixture of kids? So the beauty of growing up in New Jersey for the most part, part, especially in the area where I lived, was um, diversity was not uh, a foreign or uncommon idea. I mean, Mm -hmm. my neighborhood was comprised of most people that looked like me from a skin tone standpoint, which is somewhat tannish brown and probably coming from Brazil, uh, Portugal, 
maybe uh, uh, black, maybe, you know, from some other area that, you know, kind of had strong sun presence, you know, something like that. And so there was such a level of diversity. And then on top of that, the thing that I had experienced growing up was a ton of ethnic white people. So like people who perceptively were just white American people, but when you talk to them, they spoke Russian and only Russian, you know, or they spoke Greek or they, you know, so I experienced a lot of true ethnic diversity growing up to where multiculturalism was never even a second thought of my life. That was something that uh, was just a natural expression of my day-to-day living. And so I didn't really think, I'm sorry. It sounds like it, based on what you said before, it would have been easier if you hadn't been kind of that middle, you could be anything, where if you were just perceived as being black, you could be black. If you were just perceived as being white, you could be white. But you were faced with yet another choice of who am I and how am I going to live that out by not being able to have that exterior default setting for everybody. Yeah. And I think with that, you know, I didn't feel super uncomfortable uh, as it pertained to where I fit in the construct of life and relationship and, you know, even school, things like that. It was mostly an internal process of trying to figure out for me, where do I fit amongst these people? Because not only was the ethnic piece of my, you know, I guess, uh, multiculturalism, you know, present, it was also, you know, being in an under-resourced part of the neighborhood, being in, you know, different situations where, you know, family members were in and out of jail, things like that. Like, so there were all these different moving pieces that really, you know, contributed to how do I put myself forward in the midst of all of this to represent this, you know, ideal self versus the true self kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where so, did you start finding that answer? Well, when did you start finding? Yeah, that? way way past where we are in the story. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, go. Well, the next part of the story. What did the ideal self start to look like when you then put this this identity together to present to the world? Yeah, I think what I found comfort in for most of my life was the ability to. Um, make people feel other people feel comfortable it's probably out of a deficiency from the place that i had experienced mm-hmm. um i would want to project that to others so i was always outgoing i could make people laugh i would serve other people in areas and ways mm-hmm. that you know i could even as a uh in terms of a teenager you know it's yeah. different than you would as an adult but i just was always giving of myself and my time to other people um, I was good at sports, uh, so that became a big part of my identity. Um, it, I was good at school. That was another piece. So I was able to fit into a lot of different groups. And so the ideal self really was primarily and most easily described as uh, someone who could fit with everyone. I could, yeah. I could be everything to every person. Uh, there weren't very many, if any, enemies in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... Uh, definitely somebody who was quote unquote popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality of that, as we know, with any projection of ideal self is there is no depth to any of that reality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was right. no real relationship. What, what was your relationship with God during this time in your life? Yeah. So I was uh, at eight years old around church because my mom uh, had found Jesus as uh, a respite and a rescue from the life that she'd been living and. Um, she found hope in who he was. It was a deliverance from 
alcoholism and and uh, and a move toward a healthy life and a healthy rhythm uh, for her. And so she started attending a church. And uh, as a kid, I would go with her on the weekends. I would go to to visit the church, and then ended up eventually moving back with my mom from from living with my dad. And church had become a really big part of her life. She would go Wednesdays and and mm-hmm. Sundays and things like that. And so. I kind of became uh, enmeshed in the church culture there, whether it's through uh, youth group and things like that. And so uh, I was around church. I'd heard things spoken about God. I probably would have even professed uh, to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, I remember hearing a sermon when I was a kid that was really um, dominated by the idea of uh, either you follow Jesus or you go to hell. And for me, it just seemed like such a simple choice. If you're really saying it's just those two things. Um, and really there are no, uh, grand obligations from me other than to say I'm team Jesus, like I'll do that. And so mm-hmm. my alignment with the way of Jesus really, uh, was almost kind of a, yeah, this, this or that kind of proposition and, uh, just would have probably identified verbally as a Christian, but really didn't need to do that. You know, it was just kind of like, I was around my church friends, which was about 20 minutes from the neighborhood where I lived. And then. I had my school friends. And what I always say, you know, in in answer to your question is I I was never uh, what I would call a proactive hypocrite. (laughs) I didn't intentionally set out to live a different life, but I just realized uh, in the rhythm of the way things were, um, there were just two different operation (laughs) ways of of living, you know? Yeah. That's uh, That's your next book, Curtis Zachary, The Accidental Hypocrite. There you go, <laughs> which I'm sure continues until I die. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that that's where um, I just began to realize, you know, I didn't have a heart compulsion to the way of Jesus. Uh, it was just more of a place of identification to say, if I had to pick a lane, that'd be the lane. I think all these people were good people. I think the teachings about Jesus were uh, were good. I didn't really know them very well, but I kind of knew the general uh, the general idea of what was being communicated. Uh, I owned a Bible. Uh, I probably listened to Christian music, but it was really just more of a, a guilty by association more than anything. It wasn't a real heart compulsion to to who God is and what that meant for my life. Mm. Wow. I just guilty by association because you're with Christians. You can be guilty by association, but you can never be innocent by association. That's mm-hmm. interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Anyways, go on with your story. Yeah, so I think, you know, at that point, uh, I was about a junior in high school. Uh, there was a lot of interest in, in me playing football uh, in college. Um, that was kind of the pathway that I had really put a, a lot of eggs into the basket of. And um, my senior year, second, second game uh, of the year, I tore my ACL. It's kind of one of those uh, classic TV stories of, you know, you, uh, you know, have a trajectory toward hope and, you know, all that and it's taken away, it's dashed and whatever. So um, that began to set me down a pathway of real and total apathy <laughs> toward mm-hmm. the future because uh, I didn't really have any direction. I didn't have any hope uh, because, again, we didn't have a lot. I didn't have any hope of of going to college apart from my ability to get a scholarship. So I just kind of thought, man, you know, I'm not really sure how the rest of this story unfolds, but so many of my friends, the people that I'd seen, the people that I'd known, all the examples that I had around me, 
even the good athletes, the people who were popular in school, they had kind of ended up working at gas stations or there was a landfill that was close to where we lived. A lot of people worked there, you know? And so I, uh, I just really began to feel like, you know, what is this all for? What is this worth? You know, like, I don't really understand what, what life really means and is comprised of in the way of, of direction. And so, um, I had applied. Now this is where the story takes kind of a weird twist, but like I'd applied uh, because our guidance counselor in high school had asked us all to apply to three colleges as an assignment for one of our school classes. And at the church that I was attending, uh, Liberty University had set up a table that had, um, you know, you can apply for the college or whatever. And they had waived the application fee. And as someone who didn't have a ton of money to submit 50 bucks to all of these different, you know, applications, I was like, well, this one's free. I'll do it. You know, so I applied and didn't really understand or know anything about a Christian college. I didn't get what that meant other than I knew Christian people. But that just meant, you know, you had a different title in front of your right. name. And, and a college located in Lin- a place called Lynchburg. Didn't yeah. Bother you Lynchburg. Yeah, that's yeah. That that didn't uh, occur to me until I got there. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, there were a lot of things that didn't occur to me. And so I applied to go to to Liberty, never thought again about it, hurt my knee. Fast forward uh, to the end of my senior year. uh, I had found this local college that was going to allow me to come and play football. And uh, I wasn't going to get any scholarship. I was going to be able to afford it. Um, But it was just miserable. The whole idea of staying in New Jersey, being here, just mired in this, what is this all worth? And this lady uh, from Liberty called me um, way later than I would think anybody should have been calling someone about the perspective perspective idea of going to a college. But it was about a month away from school starting. And she called me and said, hey, you know, we have this spot for you if you want to come, if you want to figure out how to make it happen. I talked to her for about two hours about, you know, what what's Virginia like? What's you know, I didn't really ask a lot of questions about the college just because I didn't know what to even ask, you know, and she was telling me about the area and just how fun it is and all these things. And I just said to my mom, you know, I think I want to go to this place in Virginia. And she, knowing that it was a Christian college became full bore 100%. All right. I want to get you out of this place. Let me get you over there on the first thing smoking. And so when I did get to Liberty, um, that's when I did realize some of the things that you're saying, you know, that the city was called Lynchburg, which was very interesting to me uh, in its, in its, uh, in its title. Um, but then also about the school specifically, you know, I, I realized quickly there was a curfew. There was, um, you had to wear a shirt inside a class. Uh, there were some very specific ways of thinking about the Bible and church and all these things. And I was just kind of like, man, cause I'd never really thought about denomination. I went to a denomin- non-denominational church and, so there was this really vivid uh, awareness and wake-up call when I arrived to Liberty. And I think that that was kind of the real, uh, I guess, beginning of my journey in the way with Jesus um, there at the school. Nice. Yeah, you were exposed to a lot, I'm sure, there. That's a, that is a major world change. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> what, what, what year did you go there? So I got there in 96. Um, it was... Um, definitely something that I would have, if I had the conscientious thought about what I was entering into, probably would have said no to, but I'm thankful because what my real engagement looked like was the processing of 
all of these people who were professing a faith in Jesus, but the manifestation of what that looked like in their life was so vastly different. Mm. And, you know, this is where that uh, awareness of not being a proactive hypocrite really came in because what I started to recognize were all these people were saying that they were followers of Jesus, but they were sneaking out on the weekends and hooking up and drinking and all this stuff. And I was just kind of like, why would you put forward this other idea when you're living this whole other life? You know, what is, what's the point of doing that? Why not just pick a lane and go? And I think it was in that realization that I kind of saw in myself. Well, number one, for me to know that that was happening, I had to be around both of those crews, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But then two, it also showed me, um, man, I don't, I don't know what my real identifiable or discernible way of belief in life really is. I couldn't say at that time that I had a certitude around anything that I believed in. And that was troubling to me because I just realized that felt like I was aimless, truly aimless in life. And so in the midst of that and being taught this very specific pathway and understanding the Bible, I just felt like, man, I need to read the Bible myself. Like I need to figure this thing out for myself. I need to see the teachings of this cat, Jesus. What is he really talking about? These people are saying things. These other people are saying things and living this completely different. Like what is Jesus really calling us toward? And one of the most revolutionary ideas for me was to begin to understand that there were real implications to following Jesus on earth now. And I think that that was the game changer. You know, my whole life and proximity and understanding uh, any of the teachings of what would be articulated as the gospel really was focused on um, when you die, Mm -hmm. you're going to go to heaven. So your life here on earth is centered around uh, doing the best that you can to live a life that hopefully honors somewhat these teachings of Jesus and do the best that you can to get as many people as you can uh, aligned and, and allocated with this idea that later on you're going to ride off into the sunset. And when I began to read the Bible, I just started to understand Jesus's intention for his message was completely different. Than that. <laughs> I mean, completely like just antithetical to that. Actually, it was really, how do you get the kingdom to come here now? <laughs> that was a game changer for me. And I just started to read the Bible through new lenses. And if it was really true that there was a God who desired to be with me in this right now on earth. That's the God that I wanted, wanted to know. And so I remember being in my dorm room and it wasn't at a church service. It wasn't with a bunch of people. I just said, Lord, if, if you're truly that God, that's the God that I want to know. I want to invite you uh, into this space with me. I want to, I want to do this uh, uh, with you. I want to do this from you. I don't want to do things for you. And I feel like that's where everything had been centered until that point and God just kind of reframed my thinking. Wow. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to let Nate pick what comes next here because we have a couple things on the table. That's when you got your new identity. I know mm-hmm. we're moving towards talking about this book that's on the table right in front of you. Yeah. Uh, but there's more to the story. There's all this hip hop stuff and uh, music and ministry. So Nate, how do we... How do we want to get to this book that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think I think maybe the thread we need to follow is the thread of um, friendship and mentorship, uh, because uh, you began to uh, God began to bring people into your life, men into your life. Now, yeah. uh, how did how did that play out in moving you 
from uh, your student days in college to uh, the point when I met you, uh, already fairly deep in music business and and also on into ministry. Yeah, I think what you just said is so vitally important uh just okay. because is that a tornado warning hold on no, I don't know. it's an amber alert that hit us both at the okay. same time. all right so we'll make sure that we don't need to evacuate okay. <laughs> some kid in memphis on a van with soaked up windows uh, oh, circle. Way, way too soon uh, exactly. okay. so yeah I, I feel like you know what you just said is such an important aspect the deficiency that I experienced in my life in the way of mentorship and really fathering in some ways Mm -hmm. um, was definitely apparent to me uh, kind of following this response to the call of the way of Jesus. I mean, I really feel like that's the thing that I'd I'd recognized uh, was necessary. I needed to lean in in relationship with some people to be able to figure out what it looks like to understand how to navigate life just in practical, uh, everyday ways that, that I had not uh, had the opportunity or luxury of being able to learn along the way. And um, yeah. It, what are, what are a couple examples of those? Well, I mean, I think it's just as simple as uh, one, no one ever taught me how to shave. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it gets as fundamental as that up till, you know, what does it mean to present yourself at a job interview? Like, what does it look like to, you know, be a responsible man and taking care of your, your rent and your car? Like, what is it? You know what I mean? Like I could go down any number of roads with that, but I just think life skills, life skills all the way up till what does it mean to be a man uh, responding to the way of Jesus and living that out on earth in every, in every way. I mean, I just think that's what Jesus is calling us toward in the way of discipleship. That was the gift that he gave even to the cats that he calls alongside him. He says, hey, come follow me. Come be with me. Come walk with me. Um, there's this entering into relationship that's reciprocal. It's, it's an investment. It's giving over to one another. And I think even in my reading of the Bible, I started to recognize, well, that's something that I need in my life. I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how to find it. But uh, as Nate was you know, referencing, there was a succession or a succession of, of, of men who saw something in me and were able to identify uh, whatever you want to call it, a potential, uh, a sense of uh, hopefulness for my future, whatever it is, to, to be able to say, why don't you just come alongside, walk with me, uh, learn what you learn, and, uh, and move forward. And that started uh, right then uh, before I had met uh, you, Nate, and, and it was with a man named David uh, Mullen. He, uh, I met him working at a Christian sports camp. He and his wife had come to speak to the kids there. And uh, there he saw me kind of serving these kids with an energy and a vigor and kind of this newfound identity in Christ and, and serving out of that. That's where I was kind of doing whatever I could. I was uh, rapping for the kids. I was talking to the kids. It was just whatever I could do to be able to engage, you know, for the way of Jesus. And mm-hmm. he saw something in that and just said, Hey, would you ever consider coming to Nashville and maybe pursuing that as a vocation? And I'd never thought of that one day in my life, but at the end of my time uh, at university, it was very apparent to me that I didn't want to go back to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I was willing to take the next step to say, maybe there's something else. And so David and his wife invited me to come live 
uh, in a barn, basically. And there's mm-hmm. a whole other podcast in that. I lived oh, in a barn man. for a year. <laughs> but uh, that... Uh, as long as you were born in a barn, then it's okay. That's right. I wasn't born in a barn. <laughs> but I did dwell in a barn. <laughs> plenty of stories. But so I think that that kind of set me out, that investment of time, uh, the willingness to kind of share life with me, the mm-hmm. good, the bad, the hard, the all of that was very apparent to me. And so I saw... Uh, life lived out before me in ways that now as a Christian, uh, I hadn't really seen before. And so being able to discern and process all of that in light of the way of Jesus was new for me. And it just kind of produced an insatiable hunger for me to one, learn from different people who had these different life experiences and two, enter into relationship where I could be seen and known uh, by other people. Yeah. We're going to get eventually to your book. Uh, the title is, uh, to me, even the title is relaxing. Mm. The title of the book is Soul Rest. Mm. Reclaim Your Life, Return to Sabbath. At this point in your story, um, you know, I see you as a very hardworking young man. Just uh, killing it. Mm. Uh, and bringing yourself 100% every day. Uh, from motives that are mostly righteous, although we know enough of the shadow to right. know that there are other things that are driving right. Right, all of this achievement. Uh, uh, people take notice. Uh, you move into ministry. Uh, God brings you a wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a vision for ministry. Talk a little bit about where ministry took you and, and kind of bring us to the point where you kind of hit the wall on all that energy. Yeah, so I think you just outlined it in the best way possible. There was a continual um, understanding from me uh, that if I continued to do the things that I was doing well, there would be affirmation and there would be avenues that would open up for me as it pertained to life and just whatever, you know, just ministry and so my identity was completely and deeply connected to the things that I could do for God. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of my value, my worth were, uh, were woven into my operation, my doing things for God. So whether that was speaking, teaching, leading, uh, writing, making, anything, you mm-hmm. know, just anything that I could do for God uh, was... Uh, becoming affirmed and very celebrated in different right different respects you know whether that was in the local church or from other people outside of the church and so uh like you said i think 100% my my heart and my intentions were pure and good in that i was desiring to honor god with these things but i just realized over and over again that um my ability to do things for God would get me so far, but there would still be a deficiency in my life connected to what that really meant from a place of meaningfulness and relationship, mm-hmm. not only to people, but more importantly to the God that I was serving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, that kind of took us down a road to where we were on a very, uh, I guess, quote unquote, successful trajectory in ministry. There was a lot of affirmation, a lot of people asking me to do a lot of different things, uh, projecting uh, the things that I could be doing in the future, mm-hmm. where they saw me going, the, the all the whatever. And it was great and it was well-meaning and good intention people. And really it's none of this story uh, is 
on them. <laughs> it's right. really on me and my response to all those things. And where that kind of led us was this intersection place to say, all right, well, I see all this unfolding. I don't really know how to process all that's developing with my quote unquote platform mm -hmm. and how that really connects to advancing the kingdom in the way of Jesus. And so my wife and I began to pray in that season and we arrived at this decision that we were going to go join a small church plant in an under-resourced area in the Bay Area, California, a city called Richmond. And uh, it was completely the antithesis of living in a city, Franklin, which mm -hmm. is uh, surrounded by a lot of opportunity, a lot of advancement, uh, really your, your ability, your ideas. Um, most conversations start out with, hey, what's your name? Okay, well, what do you do? You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so living in the Bay Area, in this under-resourced area, a lot of my friends were homeless or the working poor, you know, they could care less what my platform was or yeah. what I was doing, you know. Uh, but the thing that I quickly realized was there was this intersection uh, where we were able to arrive at the place where we realized, okay, this clear trajectory toward platform and advancement and growing and identity of ministry, that's not what we want. Let's go to this other side and maybe we'll divest ourselves from all those things and yeah. move into this other space. But what I realized there was the problem or the issue that was deep in my heart was the exact same because I was still trying to serve out of my abilities, still trying to serve out of my own ideas, my own energy, my own will. Uh, the work looked vastly different. It wasn't about a platform of preaching or speaking or doing things in front of people. Now it's helping homeless friends find a place to live, or uh, now it's helping people walk through recovery situations or, you know, people yeah. who are, you know, court cases, all these different things. But I realized it just wasn't sustainable in the same way that it wasn't sustainable before. I realized it wasn't sustainable now. So uh, I just remember going to my wife and saying, I feel tired and I don't know how to fix it. Um, it was a deep kind of tired. And uh, it was starting to alarm me because I didn't know what the next steps were out of that. So the thing that really started to bring it to a head for us was I was feeling this kind of challenge to my identity. And then during that time, we'd experienced loss through miscarriage. Mm -hmm. uh, we experienced two losses within about a seven month period. And the second one was further into the pregnancy and was more physically taxing to my wife. And that was extremely emotional for us. And that obviously brought more questions around, we're doing all these things for God. We're doing all these things for you. And yet these things are happening to us. Like, what does that really mean for us? And then the third piece to that was in the midst of all of that wrestling, we felt alone. You know, I had developed yeah. this process and life where, um, I was the guy that people were asking for help. I was the guy that everybody was saying, Hey, how do we fix this situation? And now I'm feeling this deficiency. I'm grieving through the pain of loss. And now I don't know where to go because everybody's going, well, let me just give you time so you can work it out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so honestly, it was the convergence of those three things that I would say finally caused me to say, all right, everybody out of the pool, something needs to change, you know, something needs to yeah. shift in our lives. Yeah. And, and that was the so, record. So before you make this turn in the story, uh, the, this phrase has come up a lot in your story, the for God phrase. Yeah. As you're saying it, I'm trying to think like where, biblically, where is this coming up? Is, are there verses that say, do this for God? their high callings, but even taking up my cross and following Jesus it is not necessarily for his sake. It's for my sake so that I can know him more. 
and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. So how, how did that, was, was that phrase an important uh, pothole that you kept hitting? Yeah, I think to your point, in proper ideology and understanding uh, of those truths, you're exactly right. I would say, honestly, the majority of Christian culture is centered around the idea, whether it's innately uh, or um, directly from leadership, uh, your involvement, your action on behalf of the cause of the kingdom of God has a direct correlation with your standing in rightness or wrongness with God. (laughs) I think it is 100% put forward, especially even for me growing up where I would see, um, you know, verses that are in the Bible that give very clear language that if according to what you were just saying in process and proper ideology and theology, you would understand to be right and good. But without that, you hear a verse like faith without works is dead. What does that mean to you? Unless you work, you don't have faith. So you hear ideas like this that go, all right, well, faith without works is dead. You need to show that you are a good Christian. You know, there are these other ideas that say, yeah, um, uh, we are God's workmanship created for good works. Taken out of context, that verse 100% can be imposed upon a people to make you say, unless you work, (laughs) you are not the expression of God. You need to work to show this. Um, you so when, couple we, that. When, we go to, when we go down that path, then the the first two things we lose as Christians, it seems to be, is completeness through the work of Christ and adoption as sons fully. 100%. So to your point there, I mean, I go back to that Ephesians 2.10 verse. For God's workmanship created, by Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he'd set beforehand. We like to take that verse apart from the one that precedes it, (laughs) which is, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift from God, not from work, so that no man can boast. So it's not about work. But then the very next verse says, it's all about work. So what is that really saying to us? Well, without a proper understanding of what Jesus would say in Matthew 4 is the gospel of the kingdom, It changes the way that we see things, because if my gospel is centered around my ability to make sure that when I die, I'll go to heaven. Everything about my life is centered around the things that I can do for God to preserve that idea. I mean, even Paul in the book of Galatians was having this exact same debate with the people. (laughs) It's grace and the law. All the people had heard the gospel of Jesus. These weren't people who were far from God. These were people who had heard the gospel. John 3.16 God loves the world. He sends his son through his work. He rescues us. They heard this. After hearing this go, all right, we know that Jesus has done the work. These are all the things you have to do to show and prove that Jesus has done the work in your life. And your righteousness is now directly connected to your ability to do that. Paul is so upset about this idea that he says, if someone is sowing this seed among you, (laughs) I would rather you emasculate yourself (laughs) because he's saying you are stealing the very truth that you had just referenced adoption as sons and the freedom and the flowing that comes from the finished work of Jesus. That's a great great example of how crazy we get as Christians though, because the Galatians were dealing with the circumcision party. Exactly. And like who in the world would be like, 
you know, if you tell me I'm a Christian, so I have to show up two days a week to church and serve uh, at a soup kitchen. Okay. But if you tell me I'm going to be a Christian and you're going to like start, you know, cutting parts off my wang doodle, that's not cool. I'm not, I'm not for that religion. And, And listeners just know, we've told you before, but if the circumcision party comes to your town, if you see people with balloons and clowns and scalpels, don't go. <laughs> I just love that you guys have talked about that. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. <laughs> so I love it. You've got this moment where you say something's got to change. Now it's going to change. But did you have direction on, you know, you're, you're doing a full stop, but then what? Yeah. So I think the full stop for me wasn't so much, all right, I'm checking out of life. It was more about what is the why behind the what, <laughs> you know, what, what is the reasoning for the things that I'm doing? Like, what are the motivations that get me to the place where what I'm functionally serving in, what I'm doing in my life right now, the things that I'm even professing with my life, what are the true motivations for those? Where did they come from? How much of that is my preservation of my life based upon what I think is the right and good thing to do versus what is motivated and, and expressed from a connection to the way of Jesus? Wow. Don't, and, uh, don't rush past that point. Hmm. Everybody hits those points of crisis and certainly uh, many of our listeners that we talk to. And the first thing I think almost everybody naturally does is what is the next what? Right. This wall. So what's the next what? And for you to say you you came to this new, I mean, it sounds like it's a new way of doing it, which starts with the why, not with the what. That's that's so huge. I think the game changer for me is this, uh, the most practical way I can kind of explain it is it's like if there was an athlete that was playing a sport you know, they break their leg, they're going to go into rehab. And the the whole point of going into rehab is so that you can get back in the game. You know, you want to get back, you want to perform. And so what drives you through the rehab and the, in the tension and the difficulty of, of that process is your, your motivating factor is I want to get to the other side of this so that I can get back in the game and I can play at a high level. As a matter of fact, I want this to form and shape my character so that I play even better. I'm even better on the other side. And I feel like what God was saying to me is, is it enough for me to meet with you in that rehab, in that, in that process, in the work, and to realize it's enough if I never get back in the game? <laughs> Basically, what I felt like God was saying is, am I enough for you? Yeah. If I take away all the things that you're known for, all the things that you do for me, all of the work, all of the teaching, all of the preaching, all of the serving, you know, I was, I was volunteering at the local boys and girls club. I was helping tutor at the high school. I was doing all these things. And I felt like God was saying, if I take all of the opportunities for you to do things for me, would you love and worship me with the same passion? And my answer immediately was no. I just knew quickly that was true. You knew so the your, question your identity the, was in the field, in the in the father's field, not in the father's house. That's exactly right. There it is. That's exactly right. And there's a quote um, from Soren Kierkegaard that kind of sums up where I was personally. He says, it is absolutely unethical when one becomes so busy communicating that he forgets to be what he teaches. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's, that's my life in a nutshell. And so the, the pursuit then became... Uh, in in your terms of kind of the, the full stop was talking to my wife, 
uh, and saying, what do we need to do to get to a posture where we can receive from God the things that he has for us to receive, not to do things for him, not to work our way out of this, not to figure out what's the next thing, how to hurry up and get to the next, uh, the next field to work in that might be more you know, productive or more healthy or whatever, but to finally stop and say, how do we receive whatever it is that God wants us to have? And I think that that's where for me, it began to be uh, this awareness that I needed rest for my soul. And um, there's another quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, how can I lead people beside the quiet, still waters if I'm in perpetual motion? Mm -hmm. I realized I needed to stop. And the terrifying thing was, if I finally stop, who am I really? What does that really mean for my life? I needed to figure that out. And so that's what represented uh, what you described as a full stop. So how'd you do it? What's the loop with that one? <laughs> Cliffhanger right there. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to buy the book. It's uh, on Amazon. You can read all about it in the book. No, 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 no. not at all. Yeah. So uh, what we did uh, as a, as a couple, we just began to, to conversate about what that looked like and what that really meant for our lives. And, and I just immediately knew um, I needed to have clarity of thought and clarity of purpose beyond what was already assumed by myself and others to live and work uh, as a Christian person. I needed to get clarity and I needed to just really step back for a second. And so I started to pray about this and we started to talk about it as a family. And what I realized was, I'm not sure what the next step is, but I need to share with this uh, community of guys that I was working with in this in this church plant that I needed to step away from vocational ministry for a time. I didn't know what was next, but I needed to make that commitment to be fair to them and also to be ready to receive whatever God had. I didn't know what the answer was. So I took like a three month landing period. I, I said that to those guys, they were super and fully supportive. Uh, but at the end of the three months, I honestly didn't have any clarity of the next step. And so what we did was uh, what I always say, it's, you know, what every, little boy dreams of I packed up all my stuff and I moved in with my wife's parents right <laughs> it's what every little kid dreams of you know mm -hmm. grown man with a <laughs> wife and you know we had then had a son uh, after our losses and so I'm taking my then you know five month old son my wife who had been married to for about six and a half years at that point to now live with her family because we just need we just need clarity and they were extremely gracious to us. They understood where we were in our process and what it looked like for me to answer your question was um, essentially what ended up being for me uh, a year long process of inner work, uh, self-care, soul care, counseling, conversation, uh, direct and real conversation with my wife, uh, prayer times, petitioning before God, a lot of weeping, uh, some running, uh, you know, just a lot of things comprise that time. And uh, it's hard to fully explain what all was represented from that time. But the thing that I can simply say about it in what is probably a reductionistic way is I just postured myself before God to say, I am completely deficient and empty in my answers and understanding on how to move forward in my own strength. I need you to show me if you truly have what it takes to fill me 
what it takes to receive from you those things and how to live from that place. And uh, that's what kind of resulted and it, it changed my life. Wow. So you, what did you... I got to tell you, I, yeah. I, I, uh, I see the change, I hear the change, I feel the change mm. when I hear you speak. Uh, you kind of you kind of got uh, almost conned into coming back to Frank <laughs> to to join this little relational church that just all of a sudden blew up after you got here. <laughs> Instead of sitting in a room with dozens, you're uh, on a platform before thousands. But um, I feel when you speak, uh, Curtis. Um, that you are at peace with God and yourself. You carry a restful presence these days. Mm. It's not frantic. Mm. Uh, It's very encouraging and highly motivating, but it comes from a deep and quiet place. Uh, I can see the sign of God's work in your life. Mm. And uh, we're uh, we're running out of time, but I really do want to recommend for our readers... There's, there's no time limit, Nate. I'm, I'm thinking about this conning thing. I think that's, uh, it's an important thing because everything you talked about, Curtis, before had to do with the product. The product of what you were doing gave you an identity. But after you came out of that year, it sounds like you, you had enough holy apathy that it didn't matter if it was to dozens of people or thousands because that number had nothing to do with the identity anymore. So the thousands couldn't rob from you what you thought you would have gained by only the dozens. Yeah, and I think that that only came as a result of kind of what Nate's referencing. He's joking, of course, but uh, I moved back to Franklin uh, to be a part of a church, and it was a smaller church um, at the time. And what I said yes to, it was a smaller congregation, smaller staff, and uh, I coming out of that season was seeking to preserve all of these things that I had um, experienced and, and come to know to be true. But to your point, I feel like um, once the church uh, merged with another church, it began to grow exponentially. And so it did shift from, from hundreds to thousands within about a year time. And um, I think to your point, Without that season uh, of development and uh, growth and challenge and depth that God had allowed me to experience with him, uh, there wouldn't have been a health and life to be able to thrive and to operate in this current construct because uh, all of my life, which had been determined by my identity, value, and worth in what I could do, now I'm setting myself up for the ability to open up the evaluation mm-hmm. <laughs> to not just a few people, but right. to thousands of people, not just from a distance, but in my local context. So now mm-hmm. it is now completely and totally uh, this potential place of uh, rising fear, anxiety, yeah. worry, all that. But yeah, but the, back but then, the core gospel that you now have, and I totally yeah. understand why that would give the fear but when your identity is in Christ, no one can give you any more identity than you can have in Christ. And no one can take away your identity if it's in Christ. So that's against those fears. And I, oh, yeah. I think that's that. That's the foundation on which a life can be built. 
without needing to add the Galatians, what do I have to add to this Jesus thing so that I can have an identity that feels like what the Bible says the Jesus thing was supposed to mean? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I think that that's what Nate is referencing. I think in the midst of all of this, I do feel at rest. I feel like there is, uh, there is the way of Jesus. I'm seeking to take the next right steps in the midst of all that currently exists to figure out how to honor and to live uh, from, from God uh, in, this, in this way. And uh, it's been a beautiful process. And it's, it's so fun because <laughs> it, uh, to live in that posture with that understanding and idea in some ways becomes antithetical to the way that we think about practicing and serving inside of church and ministry. Mm -hmm. And the fun nature for me inside of it is to have the conversation, to ask the same questions that I asked of myself, which is what is the why behind the what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, to have that conversation alongside people has been a beautiful uh, and challenging thing to do. But um, I'm, I'm thankful for the chance to be able to, invite people into the story of God in this way. And that's really, even the motivations of writing the book, they didn't come from a place of advancement of a platform or a thought or an idea. It was really uh, from the thought that I couldn't help but to write, you know, these things that were coming out of me. I wanted to remember these things that God had done in my life. And then when I started to see that there was a why behind the writing that I thought, man, maybe this could be helpful for other people (laughs) that are walking through or processing through similar types of situations, then I just had to say yes to whatever he wanted to do with it. It's such an Elijah thing. When Elijah finishes Mount Carmel, then goes up all depressed on the mountain and, you know, sits there and God keeps trying to feed him and he keeps being grumpy about it. And then he finally gets over all of that. And he's like, okay, I went through that, that depressive time. What do I do now? And I, believe God's exact words were go back the way you came <laughs> Sends him right back down the road like good we're done with that all right Nate I interrupted you hold up the book and say what you're gonna say I just want the rest of that story all right yes yes for for our audio podcast listeners and I don't know that we will ever post this video but I will hold it up for our audio listeners it is soul rest like Curtis Zachary, his last name is spelled Z-A-C-K-E-R-Y. Reclaim Your Life, Return to Sabbath. You can get it on Amazon and at fine retailers everywhere. Now, is this going to tell your story and give some practical ways to enter into that? Yeah, so I I really do feel kind of bad about the idea that it feels like in this format the only way to kind of take steps is to like hey buy the book and learn you know I don't want it to feel that way but uh, it really is I feel like a beautiful for me intersection of what God has done in my own personal life Uh, but the flowing out of that reality giving next right steps for people who may be walking alongside of me in that journey so there are some practical ways that I think uh, might be um, interesting in how you reframe and and rethink about what it means to work for God or to have an identity as a Christian serving God, but then also, too, some practical ways to begin to establish and lean into some rhythms that might produce some health in life and finding that place of connectivity to who God is. Um, I'm also working on some different resources that I really want to try to make uh, available and free uh, as soon as possible. 
but I'm always open to a reach out for a conversation. If you don't want to buy the book, I'm not just trying to push books. I really am trying to um, invite people into rest. <laughs> I'm trying to invite people into this story. So uh, either way, if you want to buy the book, it is a great way to, I think, put some practical words to some things that you may be feeling. But I do think, too, if you'd rather just have a conversation or, or pray through some things, uh, I'd be open to that. The other thing I would say is um, a lot of people have the Bible app on their uh, phone, the version Bible app. Um, some people um, use that as a primary way of reading the Bible. They also have these reading plans uh, that you can um, download and they're free. Um, I did a reading plan for that. It's a seven day uh, reading plan that goes along with the scriptures. And it's kind of like a devotional slash, um, uh, I guess, introspection uh, process. That may be something that people would need as well. And that's completely free. And it may be a good way to start this conversation. It's seven days. It has some very practical ways that you can start to think about some of these things. How would our listeners get to that? So uh, the easiest way to do it, if you don't have an iPhone or you don't have the Bible app, you can go to Bible.com, which is a really good domain name to own, I guess. <laughs> and then you can on Bible.com uh, see on some of the tabs, they have reading plans. You'll see it right there. You hit search and then you could just type in soul rest. Or if you have the Bible app, you could go to um, reading plans in search and then, and soul rest is there as well to pop up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, CZ, for joining us. Uh, this is such a constructive, instructive, helpful conversation. Uh, I already know that there'll be guys who are going to play and replay this message, play it for their friends, for their spouses, and play it over for themselves. Thank you, brother. It's an honor to be with you. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right. And we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Folks had 
His family were all dead The planet crumbled But Superman He forced himself to carry on Forget Krypton And keep going Spell the world will never see another man like him. Tarzan was king of the jungle in Lord And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. It's kind of a William Shatner podcast. Yeah, a little, yeah, a little William Shatner. <laughs> Oh, uh, it was good to meet your buddy, Curtis. Oh, nice. Such a good guy. So what is the church he's pastoring? Uh, he is uh, one staff member uh, on a very large staff of a church called Church of the City. Okay. Is that the one you're going to now? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, it was one of your pastors was there on the couch? He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's good. It's ex- Allie and I are loving uh, being part of a church where, and we haven't felt this in a while, this you can't wait for Sunday. You know what I mean? Uh, and we have to get there early or we might not even get a seat. So it's, uh, yeah, uh-huh. takes, takes, takes me back. That's, that is really great. Good. Well, then I'm thankful for him for that, for giving you guys that experience. Uh, I'm curious to check out the book. Of course, you only ever get sent the copies of books that we're going to be uh, interviewing people. That's because that's because it's so fun to listen to you do an interview blind. <laughs> Having no idea. Uh, man, it was it was still that the one from a few weeks ago about the sacred language uh, yeah, yeah. That, that will forever be in my mind as the halfway through the interview. Oh man, this was <laughs> actually saying something totally different than I thought from the title, which is the only thing I was told. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners yeah. can go back and listen to that and try to hear yeah. that moment where I'm like, aha. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I am curious. I, do you know, I really, but the reason I'm interested, I have good spiritual discipline friends, people that are in spiritual formation, all of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's great. And I've spent some good weekends while they, you know, try to get get me to to just sit and, you know, do a Lectio Divina or something. Yeah, yeah. They all have a certain uh spiritual formation director vibe about them kind of a sagely, wise, monkish kind of deal. Yeah. I love that Curtis is talking about many of the same things, and yet his his basic presentation feels much more like something I relate to, because I don't have that, you know, yeah. sagely yeah. monastic vibe. So I, I would love to hear how he talks about those same things. And by the way, if you're a spiritual formation kind of person and you have that, I'm not knocking it. Some of my closest friends... Uh, just never going to shave a tonsure in my head. I use the word tonsure. Can I use the word tonsure? That's the proper word, wasn't it? You're looking yes. at me like, what are we? What are we talking about here? No, 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 no. 
Uh, by the way, on his way out the door after the interview, uh, CZ asked me to get him information about the retreat. Ooh. Uh, can't promise he'll be there, but uh, definitely is interested. And we're going to send out uh, an email here shortly. Uh, and you don't need the email to do it, but we're going to make it possible. Uh, the uh, registration for the retreat is filling up quickly, much faster than in previous years. Uh, we want to be able to uh, nail that down as quickly as possible. So we're going to let guys register with a deposit of 48 bucks. So you don't have to come up with the whole 200 right now in order to reserve your spot. Uh, but we want guys to be able to reserve a spot, be able to make plans. We can make plans. So if you think you can make it to that weekend, the first weekend in November to uh, beautiful Tennessee, the land between the lakes up there close to the Indiana Kentucky border up there, gorgeous, gorgeous country and a beautiful facility. And what's the facility called again? So people can look it up it's called Lakeshore, the Lakeshore camp and conference center. It's a Methodist property. Uh, beautifully suited for what we're doing. And as I think I mentioned last time, we have upgraded from the cabins to the lodges. So uh, you still have to bring your own bedding. I hate, I, I, I'm sorry to say, uh, but it's going to, it's just going to be a wonderful time. And if you fish, uh, bring fishing gear. If you want to do that, we're right on the water. There's boats and all that kind of stuff. There'll be a little time for that sort of recreation. Uh and, and listeners, I'm gonna let me do this because I think it's important. Uh, we have been doing a series of uh, podcasts on privilege, and so this episode was not going to be posted for three weeks from this day. I think I will put up. Uh, I'll put this up in one week so that you get this message early enough for it to matter. Okay. So uh, the. The request for forgiveness is you'll be waiting for part three when you listen to this. But don't worry. Part three will be next week. You're just taking a break from privilege and we'll be back next week. And okay. if you're upset about that, it's only because you're privileged to get to listen to this for free anyway. So shut up. <laughs> On that note, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. 